Ayers on the Road, value-based parenting and life balance ideas from world-traveling family coaches. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Well, hi there, and welcome back to Ayers on the Road. We're always excited to talk to you, even though we don't see you. We hope you're out there. We're just talking to the computer, but it is so fun to talk together, think together, um, really visualize some things that we can do that are better than we did last week and change some things about the way we think. And we're just back, as some of you know, from an interesting trip to Switzerland where we have a son and a daughter-in-law and a granddaughter, and they live in Heidi land. If any of you have ever read Heidi... (laughs) They actually do. The Heidi well, there is Heidi Land is the next mountain. But the next mountain, but that's where it was actually written, and that's. Uh, if you've ever read Heidi, you if you haven't read Heidi, you should because <laughs> it is a delightful uh, children's book. But it is amazing. I mean, if you've read it, think Heidi's grandfather's hut on the side of the mountain. That's where we've been. That's where we've been, and. We want to talk about something today that happened. Well, it was spurred by something that happened as we were in the Zurich airport getting ready to get on a plane. I always stop at airport bookshops because there was a time when airport bookshops were sort of a big thing to us because, you know, if you have a book out, if you have a national book and it's doing well and it's on the bestseller list, you want to find it at the airport bookshops. And the more you see there, that's a measure of whether it's really penetrating. If it's in the airport bookshops, because they're small, there's not room for very many books. So if you see your book there, you're like, yes. And uh, <laughs> no, the answer is not that we saw any of our books there the other day. I was just going to say, <laughs> wait, did you ever see one there? Well, we um, did see, uh, you know, a, a book called The Happiness Something. What was it? The Happiness curve or the happiness gee i forgot the title now but it got us thinking it was about happiness what was that last word it was an unexpected word anyway uh we happen to have a book or i wrote a book a few years ago not a long time ago it's a fairly new book yeah only and it if you were to pick it up you would be a little confused, hopefully. The idea would be to confuse you because you would look at the book from the front and you'd look at it from the back and you'd say, I think Uh we printed this book wrong because one side is is one side up and the other one's the other side up. Wait a minute. And one, one side, it says the happiness paradox. But if you turn it over, it says the happiness paradigm. And I, you'd say, I've got to look in here, and you'd find that it actually does have two front covers. And you read it from one side, and when you get to the middle, that side ends, and then you have to turn it over and read it from the other side until that side ends. And by the way, that's not an entirely <laughs> new concept. No, for you. You have done several books <laughs> no, like this. only two. Uh, two others. Um, but, I mean... The Secret of the Sabbath and the other one, you know, oh, that's the true. same. That's and then, true. That's true. But the very first one was was the first book that you did, right? Yeah. Well, the very we were, first. Well, we were graduate students a long, long way away. We started working on a book with a 
with a co-author, and it had two sides. On one side, it was called, I challenge you. And on the other side, it was called, I promise you. And if you read a challenge, you had to turn the book over to read the promise that went with that challenge. And if you started from the promise side, if you said, if you said to yourself, I'm more interested in promises than in challenges, and you read about a promise or something you wanted to obtain, you had to turn the book over to read on the same pages, but upside down from that, <laughs> what the challenge was that led, that, that, on the same page. that led to that promise. That's right. That was the launch of our writing career. Little did it we was. know. Even the publisher said, uh-uh, this is not going to work. This is gimmicky. Uh-uh, we're not doing that. And they actually... The other, the other author prevailed and they did it. They did it. And it turned out to be a, an amazing bestseller. I mean, at least in our church, I don't know how far it went the rest of the world, but it was really fun. So if you're like 70 years old, at least go look on your bookshelves and maybe way back there somewhere you'll find a book called I Challenge You or I Promise You, depending on which way you've got it sitting on your shelf. <laughs> right. So you kind of came to earth with this mentality. That's <laughs> what? That I was upside down? Right. That no, that you can learn something by turning it upside down. And, and that really is kind of the way you like to turn to do your life is turn it upside down. I am the eyewitness view of that. <laughs> well, and the reason, again, we're telling you a little story here to, to, to lead up to something. While we were with our son Talmadge in Switzerland, he is, if you wanted to have, sit down and have a conversation with someone about what happiness is or what, if you wanted to dissect that word and get deeply into it and find out all the nuances. You couldn't find a better person to have that discussion with than, than our son Talmadge. No, that's true. In fact, he just did a podcast with our daughters on In the Arena with Iyer Sisters, and he was really terrific. He uh, had learning disabilities at first. He he said maybe as a, was, as a young boy, as a little kid. I mean, we just could he couldn't learn to read, and we had him with the specialist at the school, we took him to the hospital, they put him in a pod and played beautiful music for him because it was giving him a headache because he couldn't think how to read. And it was so really interesting and also upsetting because, gosh, the poor little kid had to run off to resource all the time. And people knew that he had some kind of a problem. And, and he really struggled with that until he was about in junior high. And the and even then, you know, I was helping him read his assignments in high school. We moved to Washington, D.C., and I was reading his books for him and then calling him from our trips and telling him what happened in the next chapter because he could not do it. And wow, what happened to this child is astonishing. Fast forward a few years and Talmadge, um, you know, was doing well. He, he, he figured out how to overcome any issues he had by using his strengths, which were great. And he found ways to have people help him study. He, be, he began to learn in a new way, kind of rewired his brain. He became a brilliant reader, although he loves Audible more than, right. more than actual He taught reading. me how to go to Audible, and it, it has just made sense to him. But now 
He's just reading. He's reading poetry every night before he goes to bed. He has a brilliant mind. He ended up at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, that's what, yeah, that's what I was going to say is that he, he found that he, well, remember, we're telling this story to lead into happiness. Right. And, and Talmadge found a program at an Ivy League school at UPenn called Positive Psychology. And it, with Martin Seligman, who was a brilliant brain. Yeah. And so he applied and, and managed to get into a very exclusive program and to get a master's degree in positive psychology, which I think Tal would describe as the study of well-being. The, the, the word happiness is we're going to talk more about. It's, it's problematic in a sense because it means so many different things to different people. And it can be almost a frivolous word if you're not careful because, oh, are you happy or are you sad? It seems so, um, it seems sort of lightweight in a way, but it is, it is really a powerful, powerful thing. And well-being, the study of well-being and how it comes about really appealed to Tao because, you know, psychology or psychiatry often is the study of unhappiness, not intentionally so, but it's it's the study of problems or issues or psychosis of various kinds. And it, and he wanted to say, let's not, let's, I want to study not the, the, the negative side of the coin, but the positive. How do people cope? How do people successfully become happier people? And how do they flourish? Yeah, I yeah, mean, that's the key. Marty Seligman wrote a book called Flourish, and that is what it's all about. And what a great thing to study. He has become uh, a master, excuse me, I mean, uh, uh, that word, but <laughs> he really has uh, developed it, and it's become part of his soul. So the, re- the reason for that, all that diversion, and we're going to take a break in a minute, and then we're going to really jump into... Um, well, we've got a little time. We've got time to maybe introduce this whole subject to you. But so we've spent the last week with Tao talking about lots of things, including every new book that's written that sort of touches on happiness or on well-being or on flourishing or all those right. positive things. And um, it just caused me, I, we were riding along uh, beneath the Alps on a, on a road trip we took while we were there. And I, I, I just said, Tal, you know, I'm going to go home. Mom and I are going to go home and we're going to talk a little more about the happiness paradox, this book of ours, which I, you know, you, the problem with writing new books all the time is that you take you, the ones you've written sort of go on the back burner. You stop thinking about them. You move on to something else. But we just both felt this book needed some additional emphasis. So again, as you may have guessed by now, the happiness paradox is the the side you want to read first in this book because the little subtitle says, the very things we thought would bring us joy actually steal it from us, take it away from us. That's the paradox. The things that we often think bring happiness actually rob us of happiness. The things we often think are the makeup of well-being are actually the things that deceive us 
and causes to be unhappy and to lack well-being. Right. I mean, when we are kids, like, I want this and I want this and I want this. I mean, sometimes it's just stuff. But as we get older, it's like, I want an, I want a, a real house or I want a, a spouse that adores me or whatever it is. You know, we feel like we want more and more and more all the time. And it's hard to find if you don't have a mindset that goes that way. And then on the other side, the happiness paradigm is here's the correction. Here's the things that actually do bring happiness. Now, that's a pretty presumptuous thing to, to, to produce a book and say, hey, I actually think I know what takes happiness away and what restores it. But I But I do think I know that to a degree, not through my own self, but through scripture and through other sources. And so we're going to do a little kind of a mini series. This is the first of six uh, episodes on Ayers on the Road, where we're going to explore this. But our whole goal for this first one is to get you and get us thinking as hard as we can, and in as much depth as we can about this thing called happiness. And then in the next few segments, we're going to try to get deeply into what it isn't and what it is, what the deceivers are. We think there are three things that really deceive us, and there are three things that really correct those three deceptions and give us a better chance to have real happiness, well-being, flourishing. What other words? All those good things. All those good things. So think about that for a minute. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back to delve in. Okay. Welcome back to Ayers on the Road. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. And we're back talking about something that some of you may have tuned out on. I mean, some of you may have thought, oh my gosh, Another thing on happiness, there's so many ideas on happiness. I don't know if I can buy into any of them, but I'm going to try. So let us read a little from a foreword to this book, The Happiness Paradox, by not our mentor and, and longtime friend, Stephen Covey, who we've talked about so much on this show, the author of the seven habits of highly affected people and so on and so on. But that beautiful man, that mentor of ours had died by the time we wrote this book. And this book is written forward is written by another good friend, his son, Stephen M. R. Covey. And he wrote a beautiful forward that captures what we've been trying to say in this earlier part. Okay, he says, I think that my good friend Richard Iyer has wonderfully done here in this creative and insightful book is to get to the very essence of happiness, to the fact that how happy we are is inexorably connected to what we are seeking. Indeed, true joy cannot come to us, at least not consistently, if we're seeking the wrong things. Seeking the wrong things. Thus, the key to more happiness lies not so much in what we have or even in what we do, but in how we think, in the paradigms of our mind and the desires of our heart. Part of maturing or growing up is learning to control ourselves and our emotions and behavior, 
learning to take responsibilities for ourselves and for what we own, and learning to be independent in our thinking and self-reliant in our personal lives. And there is a degree of happiness in learning and practicing these things. The question is whether there is a higher level of thinking and living that brings with it a higher level of happiness. Richard says that there is. He teaches us that once we've learned the lessons of control, ownership, and independence, we can move beyond these useful but flawed frameworks and find a higher, truer way of thinking about ourselves and about our lives. I will let you discover these higher paradigms on the other side of the book. <laughs> he <laughs> so got it. That's the first part of, of Stephen M. R. Covey's forward, and it reveals that these three things are both the enemy and the friend. They're both the culprit and the beginning of happiness. And those three things, again, are control, ownership, and independence, okay? Now, I should mention that one of the things that led up to this book and to this whole kind of thinking that we're going to try to unravel and reveal to you is that I was in a big, huge bookstore many, many years ago, and happened to be right on Fifth Avenue in New York City, a big Barnes & Noble bookstore, a huge one, four levels. And I was in the section, the self-help section, which is a very big section. And I was just kind of surveying it. What kind of books are here? What are they really trying to teach us? And of course, there's almost everything you can imagine. Uh, in that self-help section. But what occurred to me as I was going down the road, looking at things, they were all, virtually all of them, were trying to lead us toward one of three things. They were all trying in some way to lead us toward more control, get more control of your life, of your finances, of your relationships, of everything, of your body, of your brain, get more control uh, the second one was ownership, how to get rich, how to own more, how to have more, how to be more prosperous, on and on and on. And the third group, as I was trying to categorize them in my mind, independence, how to be more independent, how not to be codependent, how not to need other people, how to be more self-sufficient, how to be more able to do things on your own. Those three things and I remember that that was the start of me beginning to think, wow, are those really the things we want? Control, ownership, and independence. And I'm condensing a lot of years into, you know, a very brief overview. But I began to believe as time went by that those were elementary concepts we want to teach our children. We want a child to learn self-control. We want a child to you know, um, take responsibility for his own things. And we want him to start not needing us so much. So in a way, we want all parents want every child to get a little more control, to get a little more ownership, a little more responsibility, and a little more independence. But when those things become our goal as adults, and when we carry them over into our adult lives, they become lies. They become falsehoods because there is so little we really control. There is so, so very little we own. In fact, in, in our belief, 
We don't own anything. God owns everything, and we are just passing through, and we're anything but independent. We're in we're we're interdependent on each other, we're dependent on God and so on. And I began to think of those three things that are the the objective of most self-help as being the enemy. Control, ownership, and independence. I started calling it in my mind C O and I. And I began thinking of them as deceivers. And that, and we talked about that for years before we wrote anything about it. Right. We just hadn't really put them all together thinking, oh, these people are going after things that are not going to make them happy in the end. So um, here, here's a little kind of a, a, a thumbnail sketch of, of what we decided were actually the enemy. The enemy is the distorted lens of ownership causes to causes us to perceive the world as a competition to constantly compare and judge and to develop the habits of selfishness. The mistaken. So let me oh, pause you there just for a minute. Sorry. I just, I just grabbed the book. Read, read that one more time because we, we want you to, we want to convince you that these things we almost worship that we seek all of our lives are flawed and that we need something beyond them. Okay, one more time. The distorted lens of ownership causes us to perceive the world as a competition, to constantly compare and judge and to develop the habits of selfishness. Now, I know that's Ooh, harsh, that's but but if you really can can think turn your mind a little to this this paradox that thinking we really own things doesn't make us happy. In fact, it causes us always to compare. We're always jealous of someone with more. We're always in some way feeling superior or judgmental of those who have less. And, and we'll get more into that, but it's just a flawed concept. And then here's the second one. The mistaken notion of independence puts us alone against the world and develops a, a brittle facade of pride, which hides the vulnerability that could help us to be better, to love better and be better. Okay, so independence again. What a fabrication. Who are we independent of? We depend on others every day, all day long. And in our belief, at least, we always depend on God. So getting pushing that concept too far, just like pushing ownership too far, it works for a child. It works for learning responsibility and growing up, but it ceases to work for adults. And then the third one. The third one, the presumptuous perspective of control makes us swim against the flow of opportunities and become less sensitive to others, even if it deprives us of both faith, even as it deprives us of both faith and spontaneity. So again, control, control. I want to control you. I want to control the situation. I want to control the weather. I want to control, you know, how I feel when I eat my meal. I, I want just you can control things if they are the inner part of you, but only to a point. And we try to control beyond that. And that's when it begins to lead to real problems. So. 
we wanted to try, and we worked on this for years, mainly for ourselves, not so much to write a book. It was just like, how do we live our lives in a way that will free us from control, ownership, and independence? How do we find a better path that isn't fraught with all these problems and all of this angst that comes with thinking that control, ownership, and independence are the goals? And so we came up with some prefaces or some premises, if you will, some premises that we were going to operate on. The premise is this. <clears throat> we started with joy. We all began life with our default switches set to happiness as babies, except when something like hunger, thirst, or a little tummy ache or wet diaper distracted us. Our natural state was joy. We were easy to delight. We smiled often and laughed, even giggled a lot. People around us liked to make us happy, and our happiness made them happy. We were not self-conscious about our happiness. We waved our arms, arms, and we squealed. That's true. <laughs> we did. So think about a baby. Babies, yeah, they, they cry and scream when they're hungry or when they need to be changed or whatever, but their basic instinct is happiness right right we we had a squealer on a plane the other day <laughs> oh, boy. did we ever and she was not sad she was just squealing all the way at a really double high c and uh she <laughs> that was the note so i was wondering yeah. what note that was i knew i didn't like it very much but it is oh childhood is so carefree and you know they just love life and well most of the time unless uh there are certain things which we've already mentioned um, so read on there. Maybe maybe this will kind of round it out in, in your mind. <clears throat> As we gradually grew older, that happiness began to ebb. We started growing away from joy as we tacked on the years. By the time we were in kindergarten, while happiness was still our momentous operandi, um, there were more and more things that pulled us away from it. As we went through elementary school, we began to learn the concept of ownership and with it came selfishness and competition. We began to learn the notion of control, and with it came pride and frustration. We began to learn the concept of independence, and with it came loneliness and isolation. So I think it's a good premise. I think it's the fact that these concepts were taught to us by adults who also served as the examples of them. The premise is that ownership, control, and independence are essentially economic terms, and that when they are applied too broadly and adopted too comprehensively, they become our deceivers. They become the three thieves of our joy. But remember, remember that happiness is our natural state. We don't have to discover happiness. We really, we merely need to recover it. We need to go back to some of the ways we were as babies and little children. We can recover it by grasping, exposing, and discarding three of the things that have sucked happiness away from us. We can come to understand the limitations and illusions and deceptions of control, ownership, and independence, which combine intertwine and cocoon us into a place where we're confined and walled off 
from our natural state of joy. Well, that is so true. It's something to talk about. We will um, we will be talking about this for the next couple of weeks and see if we can't delve in. And as we read this, I think of things that I need to change, <laughs> things that I uh, have kind of forgotten about. As uh, you worked on this, we talked about it a lot, but there are always things that we can adjust our view as we go through life and it makes us happier. And you know, Linda, we might, we probably should have started with even a more basic question, which is, is happiness really the goal? Because, because sometimes happiness, again, is a much misinterpreted word. But think for a minute about a scripture that says, Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. We believe that God himself is telling us that, yes, the ultimate goal is joy. And we'll get into how joy is a is a better word in many ways than happiness. And also think about something that a man who we believe was a prophet, a man named Joseph Smith, something he said, happiness is the design and object of our existence, and it will be the end thereof if we follow the path that leads there too. We want to try with you over this little mini series to discover what that path is. We and all we've talked about today is what it isn't. That path is not control, ownership, and independence. Right. So there's something to chew on for the week, and we appreciate you joining us today. And we'll see you next time on Ours on the Road. Bye-bye for now. We'll see you next time. We'll continue the discussion. 